it's kind of weird. Like money also is like not important anymore. You know, it's like time's important. Family's important. Uh, relationships are important. Your health's important. Like other things become more important, you know? Um, I'd say money now for me is not like money doesn't motivate me at all for like m- what I would do with money at all. Like there's almost zero motivation for that. It's money is more of a resource. It's like, okay, if we've got X amount of dollars. We can, we can do, you know, we can bring in our own FDA approval team. We got, you know, this amount over here. We can bring in, um, we can buy these insurance contracts over here for billing in these new states we want to go into. You know, it just becomes more of like a, I don't know, like a chessboard move than, you know, than anything. But I would say on the flip side, the first five years, money was super motivating. Like I didn't, I was motivated by money because it's like, you know, I did grow up poor. We, we didn't have a nice house and, was living in an apartment and I'm like, I want to have kids one day and, ha- and let them have like, you know, a backyard and a pool and, and a good place to grow up. And, and that did super motivate me. So I think that's kind of the money's like one of those tricky things that can, it can be a big mo- motivator, but then, you know, you reach a certain point, it's like law of diminishing returns. Maybe money's not, not as motivating anymore. So. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 200. Clark, what's going on? What's going on in your world? Dude, doing well. We were actually out together the last five days or something. So the last, I guess, this intro and then the last intro we were able to record in person. So that's really only the second, maybe the second time we've done this in person together. Yeah, I think so. It hasn't definitely hasn't been very many, but super excited. I mean, we kind of gave a few teasers out that we spent a bunch of time with a bunch of millionaires and got some invaluable content. I mean, we sat down with, I can't even remember how many. Some were, you know, as short as 10 minutes and some were as long as 30 and 40 minutes. So we've got a lot of great bonus content, sat down with some some very wealthy individuals, people all over the business spectrum, personal spectrum on how they built their wealth and investment allocation and really unique opportunity for us, especially with the podcast and sitting down with some of these people. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Obviously, you just mentioned some bonus content coming up. Also, some book giveaways. We'll be giving away a couple copies of Morgan Housel's book, the popular book, The Psychology of Money. That's, I think, one of the top sellers right on Amazon right now. So stay tuned for that here in the next, uh, probably the next month or so. But yeah, some fun bonus com- content coming up. So Clark, we were talking a little bit about just, you know, summer's winding down. Americans right now are spending, what, $765 more this summer than normal. Part of that, I think, has probably been some of the stimulus money, but also I think some of this pent-up demand to, you know, do some things to get out as we've, been, you know, kind of gone through the cycles of several of these lockdowns. What effects is that going to have on the economy going forward, you know, just in general in the short term here, but also maybe in the long term? Yeah, so that comes from a recent CNBC survey. We just found that uh, people are spending $765 more a month than they were in 2020 as they start to travel uh, and, and move around a little bit more. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I think I look at what I've been doing. I think we've probably, I don't know, about 765 a month, but, you know, we took a good vacation. We were able to get out a little bit. Obviously, we're on a trip now. So I think I've probably spent more money, and I think that makes sense. I mean, people are 
pent up, obviously, for most of 2020. So it's true that that spending's up. What does that do for the economy? I mean, the economy's roaring right now. I, I, you hear, especially in the fast food industry and, and in smaller businesses, it's hard to find labor. If you want a job, you can find it. Uh, I, I also read, I think, last week or a couple of weeks ago that the amount of available jobs is that like 10 million jobs or something. I, I could be wrong on the number, but it, the most jobs, most open job positions there ever have. So employers are looking for people. And I don't know. I think maybe that's partly why people are spending more. They're earning more. Um, I also heard just sidebar, I was talking to someone today. He said that his wife works for LinkedIn and said that if a LinkedIn employee elects to, and someone can write in correct if this is wrong or maybe it's different for a situation, but he said, if a LinkedIn employee elects to work from home, they take a 10% reduction in their salary is at least what happened to his wife. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Just a lot changing, I think, in a post-COVID or trying to get out of a post-COVID world here. Yeah, definitely be interesting. Something to, to definitely pay attention to over the next several months. We'll have to, we'll have to look at that. Last week's episode, we had Kevin. He's a 32-year-old CPA. His net worth is just over $1 million, with 80% of his net worth invested in the stock market. He also has about $80,000 a year in household uh, expenses in the bank. And he had an interesting story. Also paid off $40,000 in student loans. So go check that out. That's episode number 199. If you're interested in being on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested in submitting a question, uh, to one of our millionaires, ask a millionaire tab on our website. You can go on the speak pipe and we will play that on one of the episodes and maybe even ask several millionaires the same question if it's, uh, if it's applicable. So this week, been much anticipation for several weeks. We have a multi-decamillionaire. In fact, when we went to, you know, we put out a, a request, Clark, a few months ago about potentially getting a guest on that was worth over 200 and we got him and his name's Jeremy and come to find out we did the interview and he's actually worth over 300 probably. Majority that's in his company, but he also does have some real estate and obviously a personal residence and some cash and whatnot. So super inter interesting interview with him. Super excited, very appreciative of his time and his contributions to, to reaching out to us and, and also his friend who connected us. Super, super solid episode. You know, obviously we can learn from all of these millionaires, but I think Jeremy dropped some, some amazing advice that's applicable for all of us. And just understanding, you know, he, he worked, uh, you know, kind of in a typical W2 role for a little while after college. And then, uh, you know, took that, took that leap into entrepreneurship and started a business and has grown it substantially over, uh, over the last several years. And we get into all sorts of things on his journey that, that he's done to one position himself in the way that he has and some of the unique things that he does with his company to one, attract talent, retain talent. And, and just inspire all of us. You know, it's not, it's not often that I think we, we get to sit down with somebody with this level of net worth and what that's taken and, and, and just kind of take a peek behind the curtain uh, to somebody who's built up, you know, that level of net worth. In, in a lot of ways, I mean, Jeremy's extremely humble. I really appreciate him, him coming on the show and, and, and sharing with us. I'm glad that, that we get to release this and, you know, share it. He's, he's very open, uh, on the episode and just want to make sure that, that, uh, you know, he knows how appreciative we are of, of his time in this episode because it is really, it's it, it's a gem. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Jeremy. 
Jeremy, do you want to just give us a little about your background or what you're up to now? Yeah, so Jeremy Perkins, and um, I am a founder and CEO of Precision Medical Products. It's a company that I started in my garage about 12 years ago, um, self-funded it, grew it. The last 12 years, it's, it's worth about $300 million now. Um, and that's primarily what I've known for. I've done you know, angel investing and, and real estate investing. But that, that's kind of my uh, claim to fame, if you will, is, is Precision Medical. Awesome. And, and just roughly ballpark net worth is, is well over 300 then? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Three, 320. Something. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, that's probably about the number. You, you own 100% of that company? Um, we, we did some mergers the last um, two years. So yeah, I think I, I think I own now 94% of the company. So I mean, it's pretty remarkable. First of all, appreciate you coming on the show and, and being willing to share this. You know, we put out a, a, an ad a few weeks ago and one of Jeremy's buddies kind of contacted him just, just for our listeners and how we got in contact with Jeremy. So it's pretty remarkable he's willing to do this. But let's back up here for our, for our listeners, building a company, you own a majority of it. What was that like? Kind of walk us through the journey that, that you've been on to get to the point where you are now. Yeah, I'd say, you know, when we talk about owning like 100% of the company in the first 10 years and, and owning 94% right now, it, that wasn't necessarily by choice. You know, I, I tried to honestly get investors to, you know, come in, in the beginning and, and invest in the company. I you know, obviously tried to work with banks to get debt financing. And, and we honestly didn't have any luck. You know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't even until year three that I could even get any kind of line of credit from the bank. I met with countless investors trying to get people to, you know, invest money into into the company to help me start it. I couldn't get anybody. Like, you know, it's it's hard to get. It's really hard to get investors to come on. And even on the other side, I, I do angel investing now, so I, I sit on the other side of the fence. It's like kind of you can see it from <laughs> from both angles. And it's um, you know, there's a lot of risk like in that seed stage investing. So I'm glad now that I didn't have investors because you know. I still have control. We can kind of, you know, dictate where we want to go in the future. If we want to IPO it, or if we want to uh, do a SPAC, or bring in private equity, or find a strategic buyer, we, we kind of, you know, we can we can dictate our future, which is nice now. But you know, if, if I'm being candid, it's in the beginning. It wasn't. It was. We just didn't. Have, I just didn't have a choice. It was like we, you know, we would uh, ninety nine dollars and fifty cents back in the company. You know, just took took off a a tiny bit to live and. um and that's kind of what I did this first like five, six years just to, just to make it. Yeah. So I, I want to get into the story and we'll go back on that. Uh, just big picture though, net worth allocation. Most of it is in the business still or you've pulled pulled some of it out? Yeah, we have. I mean, within... within If you get like really granular, there's, you know, the, the, the corporate umbe- umbrella and I'm pretty open. I don't, I don't really care or hide anything. Um, Precision Holdings owns, you know, that's the, the main company that, that I mentioned is like 94% I own. There's, you know, intellectual property company in there. There's, there's a company called Ortho8 that does medical manufacturing. There's, you know, Precision Medical Products, which does distribution and, and so on. So those are, you know, I've always believed in investing in myself. I will probably hit on this, you know, sometime in this um, next 30, 40 minutes. But, you know, I've done a lot of angel investing and there's been a couple that have popped and been really good. And there's been a bunch that haven't. And, you know, I, I just think the best bets I've ever made in my life have always been on my own businesses because I control them. So, yeah, that's not, I mean, even though it sounds simple, like one business, 300 million, it's, it's really, there's a lot of complexities and, and different like 
sub companies within that within that parent right. company. And is the real estate under the parent as well, or that's separate? No, that's held. That's that's held separately. Just in you know, a separate LLC that's not associated with the business at all. I think it's more for liability than anything. Sure. And how many properties do you own there? Is that primarily single family, or do you have multifamily, commercial, office space? Yeah, we have a seventy-six thousand square foot distribution center in California. We we just purchased a fifty-eight thousand square foot distribution center in Texas, um, and then there's some a couple uh, property companies that are that that are owned. They're like just more like residential properties that I own also. So that's yeah. That's kind of the, and the warehouses is that for your medical company or that's just stuff you own and rent out to somebody else? Yeah, our um, our just well, we call them distribution centers, but yeah, where warehouses basically the distribution centers are. I mean, they're yeah, that's like anybody who owns a business. It's it, that's like one of the best ways with the SBA financing. You only have to put ten percent down, and you know you take up um, half a distribution center. You you take up fifty one percent of it, and you only have to put ten percent down, and you can rent out the other forty nine percent. And that's been great for us. We've been, you know, if you get good renters in there and, and, and you get a good deal on the building and do the TIs, you, your renters can almost pay for the rent. And, uh, and then those buildings have appreciated so much in the last five, six years. So we've done very, very well in the buildings. Uh, that was kind of like a, that's like a, been like a, a really good business move. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump back here just to how this all started. And then obviously we'll go into the business and how you were able to build that and some of the angel investing in real estate. So how did this all start? What give us the story of Jeremy here from the beginning? Yeah, so in the very very beginning, you know, if there's any listeners growing up, like I had, I had no money. It's like in call, I wanted to, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go to college, and then I went to a junior college for two years, and I decided I really want to go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I had some friends going there, and school's really really tough to get into, so. I buckled down and I did the two years in junior college, but through that I didn't, I didn't have any funds or anything to move or, or anything. So I think I had like three hundred dollars in my bank account, and I was just like basically trying to make that month to month and get by. But so I moved out of San Luis Obispo to go to junior college, and I saw an ad out at Cal Poly as an internship to go sell books door to door. And I don't think anybody you know selling books door to door doesn't sound that appealing, but. Ended up doing that for six years or, you know, four years through college. And then another two years after college, I was like a, a sales manager for them and, and, and built a, a sales organization. That was just a, a great experience. You know, I think that that's probably one of the most uh, defining uh, things that I did in my life because I learned communication skills, you know, talking to all those families. We were working 80 hours a week. It was really, really tough. And then I, through the process, I had to. You know, I ended up recruiting people my second year and then third year, you know, kind of almost became not quite like a pyramid scheme, but you know, you have like a downline of people. And when I, when I graduated college, I had about a hundred people underneath me that all sold. I, it was just, it was so valuable to experience because later when I started my company, I was just like second nature run weekly meetings to do conference calls, to do contests, to, you know, like it was just, we do a, a huge awards banquet every year. We take, um, actually, in two weeks, we're, I'm taking 85 people from my company to Tulum, Mexico, for a, a sales incentive trip. And those were those were things that like you just kind of learned, you know, real early in college, is like how to run. And that wasn't like you know I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. I was just you know selling bookstore or and just learning that. But I think I think it was just really really valuable experience to, to go through that process. And a lot of that transitioned into you know ironically running a medical company. 
So that was kind of, that was like basically the college experience. And then when I left college, I always, you know, growing up in the eighties, like you watch those stockbrokers, you know, movies. And it's like, I was just, I always want to be a stockbroker. So all the way through college, I studied and all I talked about was becoming a stockbroker. And the funny thing is, is I tell you about young, like you got to intern or go work, spend a summer uh, working in the field that you want to work in. And I, I didn't do that. So I jumped in, I got my series seven, my series 66 became a stockbroker and I hated it. I was, I was the worst stockbroker in the whole, um, there's like 56 stockbrokers at Edward Jones in the Sacramento region. And every month I would try so hard to not be number 56. I like me and this one guy, we go 55, 56 every month who would be the worst. And I was trying to like <laughs> fight to not, not be the worst person. And the irony is like, I ended up doing pretty good. It's like, you guys know my story and, and where I'm at now. So I, I ended up doing pretty good in medical sales and then really good as a CEO. I was a horrible stockbroker because I kind of joke with people and I'm laid back. And like, it's, I don't know, like sometimes when you got like an older client that has, you know, it's high net worth and they want, they want something a little more serious, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I was, I was pretty young at the time. So, but I think it's good for people to know. I, I, I've spoke to a bunch of colleges, like Cal Poly brought me back to speak as, as an alumni speaker. And I've spoken to a number a number of other universities just for college kids, like what, you know, life lessons, what you learned and all that. And, and I do think it's true. Like just cause you're not good at one thing. Like, I don't think I'd be a great, even if I was still a stockbroker today, I, I don't think I would have been that, that great. Like it's just not, it wasn't my forte kind of thing, but I bet you, you learn like what you're good at when you're not. And it's sometimes it's, it's, there's times in life where you got to stick with things and be persistent and see them through. And, and that's kind of how medical was for me. Cause I knew that I could eventually be good. Just got to push through it. But being a stockbroker, I'm like, this is just not me. It's not who I am. I'm not happy. And um, so one of the best things I decided was to leave being a stockbroker. And then I had some friends in the medical device space. So I went over and worked for a company, W-2 employee. I um, was doing pretty good. You know, the funny thing is, my wife told me never to start my company. I was making about 300... I think my second year in medical sales, I made 300 grand. And my third year, I made like 380,000 as a, as a med, med device rep. I was like one of the top 3% reps at the company when I left, always wanted to start my own business. Like I just, it was one of those things like when, I, when I'm 80 years old or, or 90 or, or whatever, I want to look back at my life and be like, Hey, I gave this a shot. You know, I, I started my own thing. I, I built something that was mine. And um, I kept telling her that. And she's like, yeah, that's great, but you're making good money. I don't want, you know, we had probably like 200 grand saved up in the bank at the time. And she's like, I don't want you to use our life savings to go start this business. And then you, you fail and then we have nothing and you're out of a job. <laughs> and for me, I'm like, um, I, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take that risk because at the time I was, you know, 28 years old. You know, I'm like, I got a lot of years ahead of me. I can even if I mess this up, I'll go back and, and get a new job. But I think a lot of people are, you know, it's it's hard to take those risks in life. And so I did it. I bet on myself, and you know, I went and took that 200 grand and bought a ton of medical devices. And then I went out there and just, you know, started selling them. And then brought in a few sales reps underneath me. Um, taught them what I did, and then we just we just kept growing it. And then you know, over time, we got our own patents. We kind of found some niche products that um, were really good in the med device space. And then we ended up uh, inventing some technology along the way. I mean, the last twelve years has been a you know a whirlwind of of hard work and you know new FDA approvals and and all that. But it's you know in the beginning, it was like taking that risk to even do it was was kind of scary because. You go from like having 200 grand in the bank, you know, feeling pretty good, you know, you know, you're, you're confident where you're at in life. And you're like, man, if this doesn't work out, like we're kind of screwed. Like, you know, so, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of how it started. 
But was it a pro- after you, you do the financial advisor, then you start selling the medical devices? How was there a specific idea? Did you invent something? Like what was the first thing that Precision Medical sold? Yeah. So prior, so when I get in the med device for a couple of years, I was already, I was already in the orthopedic space. So I already knew orthopedic surgeons. I knew the procedures. I knew the how everything in the clinic and hospital worked. So I went and brought the new products. I think we, I think in the very beginning we sold like twenty five different products just because we were trying everything, kind of you know, see what sticks, see what what people like, see what you know really hits. And uh, through the process, we found a. Uh, a huge need in the market. The number number two way people die in the hospital is um, through blood clots, and you know, just I think it's one thing that that we did very good at the beginning. Me and the first couple of sales reps, we would just ask a ton of questions. You know, like how can we help? What are the need? You know, what are the needs you guys have? How can we? How can we be a value? Because sometimes in medical, there's there's certain segments that have like they're oversaturated. Almost like in the implant division, you got like Stryker, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Synthes. You just go down the line. There's like hundreds of companies that all do the same kind of implants. And it's very, very competitive. So we just started asking, what? how can we be different? What is it you need that you don't you know, currently have? And long story short, basically came DVT prevention was you know, people were dying from blood clots. And there wasn't a lot of good alternatives for doctors. So we went out there and researched it. Found out what was out there, how to bill it, what insurance paid for, what they didn't, and then and we got some good products along the way that it kind of helped the helped the surgeons with that. And then through the process, a lot of the products were hooked up to cords, you know, power cords and and uh, um, and tubes to inflate the devices. And we were just kind of like, how do we do this without making you know being tubeless and cordless is really would set us apart. So like, we're how do we do that? And then the last three years, we've really spent a lot of time and got patents around the data management. So we're like, we, you know, the whole the whole world's going towards data. You know, it's like, how do we control the data? And we got patents around, like on our device, we have the physiological parameters around DVT prevention. So if anybody tried to do that now, they they couldn't do it. We already have we already have all the patents around the the, the pulling data from a DVT unit, and that's kind of like created a moat in the industry for us. That's allowed us to really innovate and grow, and that's kind of like where where our niche is. We still do other products. We you know, but the DVT prevention is like probably 80 percent of the total revenue of our company. It makes up the vast majority of what we do. But Jeremy, you got to admit, it's pretty remarkable. You have this desire to start a business, to be an entrepreneur, but you you go on this journey, and, you, and if you don't mind me sharing, you let us know that you, that you kind of grew up poor. You go from selling books financial advisory, pivot into the medical device. Did you ever think that the business that you would actually start would be in the medical device world? Oh, no, not a, not a chance. Like I, I think I failed like college biology and I, <laughs> my degree in college was in the school of business with a focus on industrial technologies. Like I had, yeah, like it's, I, I, the medical thing, like I said, I, I always thought I'd be a stock. I'm going to own a brokerage firm one day. I'll have like a ton of stockbrokers under me. Like that's, that's kind of what, what I always thought. So the, the medical thing kind of just happened, you know, it was like had some friends already in it. And, and I think a lot of that, and there's so many great books on this, you know, it's like finding purpose in life. When I went into medical, like it just clicked for me. Like I, I love helping patients and, and seeing people get better and, and, and healing and just the, the whole experience. Like it made me really happy. Like when I got up in the morning, you know, the last decade or the last 12 years, 
I'm not pretty motivated. Like I get up, I'm like, I have a, I have a purpose of what I want to do. I, we really believe like what, what we do does save lives. And, um, and we're passionate about that. You know, we end up giving away a lot of money every year to, we you know, built a big orphanage in Mexico. We donate like a ton of money. We've had, we've always said from the beginning, like our goal is to have 20 millionaires in our company. Um, I think we've already created uh, 13 of them, I believe. And it's, we've always had like a giving back kind of thing. And that's the thing too. Like if I'm your future being really honest, like how much money do you need in life? Like, you know, if you, if you have a million, are you happy? Or is it 5 million or, you know, 10, like it gets a point though. It's like, what else? I, I remember I wrote a book. Uh, I read, I read a book. It's called delivering happiness. I don't know if you guys ever read that. It's like Tony Shea. Yeah. Yeah. You remember like the very beginning of the book, he talks about, he sold his company and he's like, you think you want all this money in life and you buy, you know, your dream house, you know, let's say you spend 5 million, you know, you buy your dream car and you get your TV. And he's like, after that, like what else is really like, it's kind of weird. Like money else is like not important anymore. You know, it's like time's important. Family's important. Uh, relationships are important. Your health's important. Like other things become more important, you know, um, I'd say money now for me is not like money doesn't motivate me at all for like m- what I would do with money at all. Like there's almost zero motivation for that. It's money is more of a resource. It's like, okay, if we've got X amount of dollars. We can, we can do, you know, we can bring in our own FDA approval team. We got, you know, this amount over here, we can bring in, um, we can buy these insurance contracts over here for billing in these new states we want to go into, you know, it just becomes more of like a, I don't know, like a chessboard move than, you know, than anything. But I would say on the flip side, the first five years, money was super motivating. Like I didn't, I was motivated by money because it's like, you know, I did grow up poor. We, we didn't have a nice house and was living in an apartment and I'm like, I want to have kids one day and, and let them have like, you know, a backyard and a pool and, and a good place to grow up. And, and that did super motivate me. So I think that's kind of money's like one of those tricky things that can, they can be a big mo- motivator. But then, you know, you reach a certain point, it's like law of diminishing returns. Maybe money's not not as motivating anymore. So that's why I think the medical for us, we have a, a huge purpose to save lives. And we think what we do makes a difference. And that, that's what motivates us right now. All righty, let's just take a quick break here and discuss a new type of investment available to Americans. One the wealthy have not only used to hedge against inflation, but hopefully safeguard and grow their wealth for centuries. This overlooked asset class historically outperforms the traditional U.S. real estate market and provides a better safety hedge than gold. It also outperformed the S&P 500 by 174% from 1995 to 2020. However, there's one problem. Until recently, it was off limits to everyday investors. But that's all changed because thanks to a little-known law, everyday Americans can now have the opportunity to invest in this previously untouchable asset class hopefully allowing you to not only secure your wealth and weather major economic downturns, but also potentially grow it. To discover how you can now take advantage of this new opportunity and invest in fractional shares representing world-famous blue-chip artworks that have historically beat other asset classes, to explore this newly unlocked $6 trillion asset class, go to masterworks.io slash unveiled. Again, that's masterworks.io slash unveiled. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. So thanks to Masterworks for sponsoring today's episode. When you support our sponsors, you support the show. So again, masterworks.io slash unveiled. And now let's continue to the interview with Jeremy. 
What was that conversation like? You mentioned it a little bit with with your wife. You had the couple hundred grand in the bank. What was that final, hey, we're going to do this. We're all on board. I'm going to support you. And then how much did you end up using of that initial capital to get your business off the ground? Oh, man. Um, I would say that in my marriage, like it was, I was like, I'm doing this. Like, just, I'm, I'm doing it. <laughs> she fought me for a little while. She's like, I don't think you should. I don't think, I'm like, I'm doing it either way. You know, like it's, I'm like kind of like one of those determined people. And she's like, hey, look, you know, I know you're going to do it. So just, you know, best wishes. I'm not, you know, not, I don't support it. And it's not what I want you to do, but I, you know, I think you're going to do it, you know, either way. It wasn't like a, I want to say that it was like a, it wasn't like a debate or a discussion. I was just like really dead set. I mean, I think I said a couple minutes ago, like I, I just always want to start a business, you know? And it's like, so how much of it did I use? I used all of it. Like that. And that's, I, I think one of the, um, slight edge principles in life, you know, like that's kind of how we, it's one of our core values as a company is intensity and, and go and going all in. And it's like, you know, I've heard so many entrepreneurs tell the story of like just burning, um, what they call burn the bridge or, you know, put the, you put the ship out and you're like, you just, you just got to go for it. That's kind of what I did, you know, because 200 grand, you know, at the time sounded like a lot of money, but when, when you get in the medical device world, like if you're buying product overseas and shipping it on containers and doing all that. 200 grand doesn't, you know, it's only like half a container. It's not, it's not that <laughs> totally. much. Like it's, yeah. we, we, we spend, gosh, what do we spend now? We spend probably about 2 million a month on, on products. It might be, we may even spend more than that. So looking back now, 200 grand is like nothing in terms of like what it takes to fund a medical device company. It, you know, it's, it, it was minimal, but yeah, but it was, yeah, all in, had to go for it. Totally. How long did it take you to to really feel like your business had some legs? Where you're like, hey, this is going to work. I'm going to get to an income level that's that's you know comfortable and sufficient, and I, and I've got a really full fledged business kind of rolling here now. Yeah, let me can I make a side comment and then I'll answer that question. Totally. Go ahead. I, I'm writing a book right now, so I'm going to plug my book, and I'm going to by plugging it, I probably won't be out for another year. Probably a really premature plug, but whatever. The book is is all written around this idea of you know finding purpose and what because I think if if you everybody has like a different journey you know like different things motivate people totally differently and if you can find so like for for me I I am like pretty like I'm an A type like go getter like I like I'm one of those my wife always jokes like that I would like piss off a best friend during like a board game because I want to win. You know, like I just, it's like, it's not about like the money or these like stuff about will to win, you know? And I think if you map out your life, right. A lot of people don't do this. There's, there's, I did a CEO program at Harvard. So I, I didn't have like really, you know, any background running a company. So I did a, a program for three years at MIT and then one year at Harvard. And there's so many studies on just goal setting. And it, when you really break it down, like life, Life's not that difficult. Like we we overcomplicate it, but it's it really comes down to like you know you you decide what the goals are for you personally, and everybody's different. You know, people have like different relationship goals or spiritual goals or, or health goals or or whatever it might be. Um, and for me, it was like I had some big goals for business and finance, and I, I really I did do a good job in the very beginning of like mapping out like what those goals were, and then just going. Um, and just going step by step and like, how do you, how do you get to those goals? You know? And I think that's the reason I kind of mentioned that book and, and what it is. 
everybody's different, right? Like some people might have a goal like having a million bucks in life or, or 10 million or a hundred million. And you know, there's some people that want to be billionaires. Like I don't think anybody there's nobody better or worse than anybody. It's just like you just have different things that motivate you. Some people want big, you know, I got four kids. Some people want big families, some people don't want any kids. Some people want to be married, some people rather live a life and be single. Like as long I think as long as you identify what it is you really, really want and what makes you happy. And then you you just set goals around that and come up with a plan. It's it's actually pretty easy, you know. And that's that's kind of what I, I think. And I'm I don't try to make it I'm not trying to make it not really simple, but that's kind of what I did in the beginning. You know, it's just like wrote down all these life goals and um and then just came out with a plan of like how you how you do that. And I, we do that every quarter. Like right now, I, mean, I can tell you right now to the day. I'll look at my calendar, and we're we're the very very end of Q two. So. We we run it off a. Have you ever heard of the book Twelve Week Year? No, I haven't. Maybe Jace has. So no, a lot either. of it's a huge mistake people make, and it's like if there's probably one takeaway people listening can can get it's this one thing. Everybody does annual goals, right? They go, oh, here it's New Year's Eve. I'm gonna sell these goals for the year, and then most people will come like February, March, you know, don't hit their goals. They kind of give up and then forget about it. The the Twelve Week Year, it, it's a principle you sprint for twelve weeks, and then week thirteen because there's thirteen weeks in every quarter. Okay. So right now, if you look at the calendar, we're on week 13 right now. So this is for our company. So for my company, um, for my kids, for my health goals, everything. Week 13, I'm looking back at like what I accomplished the last 12 weeks. And then what are my goals for the next 12 weeks? So I break my year into, into four quarters, you know, but I really, I do this every, I mean, we, we just had a huge meeting on this morning. We're releasing all the corporate goals next week for the new quarter. And we do these quarterly sprints. And if you can compress, um, you know, what most people do in a year, compress it down to a quarter. And you're like, let's just imagine if you said, "Here's everything I want to get done in a year. And I'm going to try and do that in three months." You, you might not do it, but even if you get close, you know, you do it in four or five months, like still a, a great win, you know. So we started just doing compression, where we just compress everything into twelve weeks, try and sprint really hard, get it all done, and then on week thirteen revamp. It's made an astronomical difference just in in, in so much stuff. And, I, and the actual, the principle on it's not a business principle. It's actually two of my best friends in the world are, are famous UFC fighters. I don't know if you guys know Uriah Faber or, or Cody Garbrandt. I don't know if you know those names at all. Mm-mm. So they're, they're, they're big UFC fighters. Uriah is a Hall of Fame UFC fighter. There's only 26 uh, fighters in the world that are Hall of Fame, and, and Uriah is one of them. And when they do their training, you know, they stay in good shape all year, but before they go in a fight, they compress everything down to 12 weeks. And that's where they get in optimal shape. It's like a, it's within a 12 week program. So it's that same methodology. And I think it doesn't matter even if you're an entrepreneur or, you know, you, you have a job somewhere or you're trying to do, you know, workouts or just spiritual anything. Like you could do the 12 week year and, and compression. Like it really works in all areas of life. Do you ever feel like it rushes behavior, Jeremy? Like you have a goal to buy a rental or something. I'm just thinking of a random example. And you're so hard pressed to get it done so that you can accomplish the goal and check it off that you buy a bad a bad investment or something. Or in business, you, maybe you want to get to a certain spot, but oh shoot, we're at week eight. I mean, it could be the same for the end of the year and you hurry and do something and, and make a bad decision. Or does that really not seem to happen? I think it does. Oh. I think what it does though, is you're going to make bad decisions in life in general. And it's that old analogy where it's like the person takes a thousand swings is still going to hit a few home runs, you know? And if you only take 10 swings, you're probably not going to hit a home run, right? you know? 
So like we 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 get a lot of swings in the back because we're we're compressing a lot and we're we're running really really fast and it's not always perfect but but we're de- we're definitely taking more swings to the bat that's for sure. Sure. So when did that start happening? When did goal setting start being a big part of your life? Was that always the case or just since you started this company? Uh no, I, I'd say like I definitely learned the goal setting was really really big on the door to door book company because that's you know kind of how you find motivation. It's a, a hard job is. You know, when you're in the summer, you know, 80 hours a week knocking on doors, you know, it's like, it's hard to find motivation, but you got to like, you know, why am I out here this summer? Why am I selling? Why am I, you know, what is it? Is it, you know, the, for me, you know, I was like, if I can go make five or 10 grand this summer, that can help pay for my college and I can get me by. And then, you know, if I go to college, I can, you know, have a better job in life. So that was kind of the motivation, you know? Yeah. So let me just jump back here to purpose. You mentioned purpose and finding yours. And, and I know Jace mentioned this a little bit. You were earlier in the show, you talked about really helping people and having an impact. How do you feel like your purpose and what's driven you throughout your life changed from when you were selling books door to door to now? Because early you said money was a, a motivator. Maybe now it's not. But how has that purpose shifted? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of cheesy. Like I, I do all those weird things. Like I, I, I have a vision board. I have like positive affirmations written out. I have like, you know, I'm just like, <laughs> I've got this like list of like the 57 countries I want to visit, you know, like I have, like, I'm, I just, I'm big in all that stuff. I think it makes a big difference. And it's weird because I'll tell you this, a lot of people don't do it. Like I'm, I, I ask you all the time, they, you know, they're always like, Hey, what advice I have? I'm like, what's your goals? They're like, um, I got kind of this, kind of that. I'm like, show me your goals. I want to see them written down. Oh, I don't have them written down. It's like, okay, you know, it's like, if you just do the little things, like take, take an hour and write out your goals. Like nobody does that. Right. sounds simple. And but nobody does it. It's like, okay, now when you write out your goals, what's the, what's the plan for each goal? You know, you want to buy a house one day. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, how, what kind of houses is it? Is it 300 grand, 400 grand, 500 grand? What down payment do you need? You know, how, how do you save up for that? What's it look like? So like you just take each goal and you break it down. And then you kind of come up with a plan, you know, like that buying a house, you probably couldn't do it that quarter, you know, so that's not gonna be a quarterly goal for you. But maybe that's a goal that you have two years from now, it once you save up, you know, and that's what I was saying, like, I, I just think so much of it is like, it's probably simpler than people think. It took me a lot. It's a, you ask everybody who's um, a, a millionaire, or like, I, I got the opportunity to meet six billionaires in my life, and, uh, and be mentored by them, like, and that's part of the Harvard and MIT program. And the funny thing is, like, when you meet these billionaires, they make it sound so simple. They're like, oh, the first million was way harder. You know, it was harder to get to a million than it was to get to a hundred million. And it was easier to get to a billion than it was from a hundred. Like, like, every step later was like way easier. That the first, the first million was way harder. And, um, you, you kind of hear that over and over again. And I think in the very beginning, you know, I, I had nothing when I started it. Even that when I say I had 200 grand in the bank, that was because I, I worked really hard. I had a good job and I saved up and, you know, just was continuously saving and investing and all that. But it really came down to like, you know, goal setting, what inspired me and then coming up with a plan and putting that all on paper and then just, and just seeing it. Like that's like very motivating. But I really, and then you know, all the studies say like 90, it's like crazy. Like 97% of people just don't do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So is the financial goal to be a billionaire now? Um, 
Yeah, I mean that that'd be I, I that's like on my on my goal list. I as one of the things I wrote down is like be a billionaire, but it's not. It's probably not. It's quite deceptive. Like if, if if a listener was saying they're like, oh, you want to be a billionaire? Like it's not. It's not the billion. It's like it's just more of like a. I, don't know, I think it's like checking off a box in life. Like you know, I was able to grow <laughs> grow a company. Like I'd have to. I'd, I have all the math now of how to do it. So we're gonna do another acquisition this year. It'll dilute me if I take it public. There's a bunch of like scenarios and stuff where I really need the company to be at two billion for me to be at, for me to be worth one billion. And I have a plan to get the company to two billion. But if I was worth a billion dollars, I'd probably give away ninety six percent of it. You know, like I don't I don't know what I would do with all that. I mean, all that money. It's not like so the money is not the motivator. On the you know to be a billionaire is more like. Well, how many is there's like what is it? I, the number change every year is like 700 billionaires in the US, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I can't remember. I looked it up the other day. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm probably off by a couple hundred or something, but there's not, you know, there's not a ton of people have done it. You know, it's more of like a to be able to like be proud that you create a billion dollar company is or, you know, that's sure. more of the motivation than anything. Sure. So giving money away, you mentioned. When you have all these different things pulling at your time and different opportunities to invest or to run the business, or obviously you have your four kids and family and friends, how do you decide who to give to and how much to give? Because I think that's something people struggle with, even if their net worth is 500000 or a million, because they want to have an impact. But when you feel like the money you give can have a greater impact, how does that weigh on you and how do you decide what causes you want to be involved in? My my personal um, investment philosophy on that is like you know this is different for everybody you know kind of thing. Um, for me, like I I became Christian when I was like 20 years old in college, and and for me that was like you know probably the I'd say that you know what you believe in and then who you get married to are probably the two biggest decisions you make. So for me, I donate primarily to Christian organizations because I think you know that just it it um, it correlates with my belief system. So. I give to Christian organizations and I, I like to have a hyper focus on kids. So that's why we do the orphanages and, and we do, um, you know, donate to, um, you know, help out with the, the issues around, um, uh, sex trafficking and everything in Southeast Asia. Like those are, that's what, what motivates me, but that just resonates with me. Is it, I got four kids and it's like, you know, the, you know, just seeing kids grow up poor in other countries, like they didn't, you know, that's just, I have a heart for it. So that's, that's what I give to, you know, I bet there's like yeah. probably a thousand great things to give to. It's not like, you know, I think it's just so, yeah, yeah, I agree. A million good causes. So with that, you have charitable organizations, you have the three things that you mentioned you spend the most time on, which is your main company, angel investing, real estate. How do you decide who gets your time? Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. <laughs> that's like, and there's probably more value now in my life on time than there's on money, right? Like that's in the beginning it wasn't like that. I'm like I just, you know, what you want to get money and you know do whatever amount of time it takes to get it, you, you kinda of do it. Now it's like I, I pass on a lot of things that are, you know, potentially good investments and good opportunities just because they take up a lot of my time and I, I just don't have like the bandwidth for it. So yeah, I think, you know, being really I, I kind of stay in my lane in terms of being the CEO, founder and CEO of my company, I, I dedicate 90% of my time, you know, in terms of like business hours to that. That's, you know, really the focus. Even the building acquisitions and stuff, they're kind of correlated to our business. So it's like, even though we're buying buildings on the side and all that, it's 
still kind of relates to the you know to the business. On the angel investing side, I've looked at I'd say well over a hundred companies, probably well over two hundred companies now, and I've invested in thirteen. Probably the biggest lesson I learned on that, if anybody is on here doing you know investments with like early stage companies, I try and find a company that's got unique technology that's you know something that really has the potential to go big. So for so like the, I get approached all the time. People are like, oh, I've got this restaurant, I got this bar, whatever. I'm out right away. Not interested. Like it's, it's not another restaurant. Another. I mean, it could be really good. They could make profit, all that. And I, I've invested in actually um, in one restaurant, and it's like. I learned the hard way. Like it's just, there's just not enough. It's, it's not scalable, you know? Um, so I'm automatically out on anything like that. So it has to be two things, either technology or patents. And the one, the biggest home run I've hit on investing, a company called Freeform Technologies, they had jet skis and wave runners, but they, they were electric and they, they had the prototypes. They never, never ended up developing one, but the, the kid that started it was 24 years old. He's the only employee in the company. And he had all the thermoforming patents on um, electric jet skis. And I had my patent attorney review it. And the patent attorney is like, yes, this is, these patents are legit. If Tesla or any electric watercraft company ever wanted to, to put um, an electric watercraft on, on water, they'd have to use this kid's patents in some way. And automatically, I'm like, I'm in. You know? And this kid had no revenue. He's burning cash. It was like on paper, it was the worst company ever. But he had the patents. I mean, these patents are worth, they're going to be worth something, you know? So I joined the board of directors with him, helped him um, kind of, you know, put some business structure to it. He was really talented. We, we grew the company. It, it actually, when I say grew it, it was like more of the infrastructure growing it. It didn't have, it still didn't have any revenue. We ended up selling it to, um, uh, to Nikola. Uh, Trevor Milton came in and, and bought it. And this is the early stage before Nikola went public. So they bought it from us. They bought it with, with stock, with Nikola stock. And then Nikola ended up forming into a SPAC and they went, and then they went public. So I was the lead investor in that company. And that, I put, I put a hundred grand down at first. And then I tried to get other investors in Sacramento to invest and nobody would do it. And then the kid was going to go bankrupt. So I gave him another 200 grand. I ended up being 350 grand all in and I was a lead investor. Um, in it, and that 350 grand turned into seven million dollars. So it was, we got a 20x return um, when we ended up selling it to Nikola. But how'd you find that? I, I just looked at it was in Sacramento. Like I, I there was a you, know, you back you go back to like the time being important. I'm kind of pretty hardcore. Like when I do these investment meetings, I'm like they're 45 minutes, and you better start pitching from the moment I walk in because that's all you get. You know, because it's like I was doing these like. You know, once a month, I, I I meet with two or three companies each month to try and see what they were doing, and it just it becomes really you know it's it's a it's a time burden. You know, I look at their pitch, I look at pitch decks from a ton of people, see if I was interested in a few. Then I have a few come in once a month to look at them, and he was one of the one of the ones that came in. So I try I try and vet them in the beginning for technology or patents, and if they got that, then I sit down with them, and then just kind of you know hear their story, what they want to do, what they're what their what their goals are, how I could help, and then um, and then that's kind of like you know how we how that's been my approach on the angel investing. Jeremy, that's awesome. Appreciate you sharing that. One question that comes in from our listeners a lot is, what are you doing specifically to help your children as it relates to to money, investments, and mindset and purpose in life? Oh, that's such a good question, man. I had all these like 
because yeah, it's because when I sold bookstore door in college, like I, I was, I was literally meeting with families. Like I do a thousand presentations a summer. I talked to them about their kids and what their goals were. And it's like, I was like, it's like hyper focused, like how to raise kids and schooling and all that. It's funny. Like once you start raising, like, for example, I'd be like, Oh, you see these families that go out and the kids are on their iPads at dinner and they're not even talking to the parents. You know, I'm like, I'm never going to have kids like that. And then I'll be sitting there and I realize like, all four of my kids have iPads and I'm like enjoying my dinner. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even care. I don't care. People don't judge away. I'm like I've had a long day. It's nice to just grab a drink and <laughs> enjoy the dinner, you know? So it's, um, I, I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't say I'm there. My kids are 12, 10, eight and five. So like I, I, I've taken them door to door a few times selling just because I think that was a good experience. They, they all hated it. Then, you know, never wanted to do it again. Like it's, <laughs> it's, I, I don't know if, you know, I, I've always told them, like, I want to do a business with them one day and, and all that. But I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I got any great business stuff for my kids. I think, I think, um, what I've spent more time on, it's something that I look back. My, my dad just passed away, um, three months ago and it was like, you know, probably like one of the saddest things, you know, that happened to me in my life. And it made me look back, like, you know, on the, on, you know, what the impact my dad made in my life. And one of the biggest things I pulled from, like, you know, from doing that was he, my dad created in me this like, cause my dad wasn't a business guy. He, he worked for all state insurance as a, a claims adjuster for 25 years and, you know, hardworking guy and stuff, but he was a, you know, um, he was a salary employee and, and he did okay, but he's just, you know, but that guy had a, my dad had a will to win. And in sports he would, um, you know, he coached all of our soccer teams and baseball team and, and, and basketball and, it was funny because my dad actually got kicked out of the, um, he was a baseball coach till age 12 and they kicked him out of the league because he was too competitive. And it's, um, cause you know, that it's like the whole like snowflake culture where people are like, you know, everybody wins, you all get a trophy, you know, good job. Great job for coming out here. My dad was like the opposite. He's like, if I struck out, he'd be like, you need to get better. You need to work harder. And he was, you know, we lose a game and I, I'd be on the bench. just so mad. Like, frustrated i remember one day i was like crying on the bench because we lost and he's like it's good to cry like you should, you know i had parents come to me like don't cry don't cry just a game you, you shock here for fun and my dad you know wait till his parents left and he come up and he's like it's not just a game you should want to win and, and you crying is like not a bad thing you should you should want to beat these kids like that's good to be have a competitive spirit you know and um i think i've tried to try to do that with and there's a balance to it you know you don't want to be like a competitive wacko or anything but I did that with my, my little girl got into soccer and she would just, she would run around the field and wouldn't care. Like the ball would go one way, she'd go the other. She was like, she was like, probably, <laughs> I would say, I would say un, unarguably the worst kid on the soccer team. And then I went out there at halftime and I, and I was like really frustrated with her. I said, Ella, I didn't come all the way out here to watch you just run around. It's, you know, I'm, I'm pissed off and I'm really upset. I, you're not trying at all. It makes me mad. I, I just want you to try. So I'm like, I'll give you, we do a star program in our house where we get, I get stars out for, for doing good things, you know? I'm like, if you score a goal, I'll give you 10 stars. And essentially a star is like a dollar. So when you score a goal, you get 10 stars and I'll take you to Target after and, and we'll go shopping, you know? And it's funny, like she was the worst kid on the team. And then that, that game I told her at halftime, she tried really hard to get a goal. She didn't get a goal. But the next game, she got three goals. And the game after that, she got four. 
And then at the end of the season, she had more goals than every kid on the team combined. Like she ended up being like, no, no joke, like the best kid in the league. Like, and she was the worst. It's, it's not even like, I'm not even making this up. She, the parents were just blown away, right? This, she sat at the bench all the time, didn't do anything. It was all about like, cause she didn't really care about soccer, you know, but she really cared about getting these stars and she wanted to like, save up money for these certain toys and she was putting balls in the net where they had to like pull her off the field or you're running the score up on these like teams like <laughs> so i think that's been like you know one of the one of the few like learning things for you know raising kids i'd say yeah well thanks jeremy i mean we could go on with you all day we didn't even talk about scaling a business um we just got a, a minute or two left here so final words of advice to somebody that word if they come to you and say hey you know give me some advice how did you do it obviously you hit on the goal setting but what would mistakes be or what would your final advice be here oh final advice i'd say like you know it was like one of my friends asking me or you know we have like 350 employees i i just say think big you know and it doesn't have whether it's you know that's probably like why i'm writing this book it doesn't have to be in it could be in fitness or it could be in your relationships it could be in traveling or, or whatever it is, like just set really, really big goals. You know, if you want to travel, go see a hundred countries. If you're working out, like set a goal to try and be a bodybuilder and just think, think really, really big. Cause there's, there's something magical. There's a, you know, the, the book magic of thinking big. It's like you start thinking big and it's like all of a sudden, like there's so much potential. Like what can we do here? What can we do there? And your mind just starts going and like opportunities start open up. And it's, I think the creativity comes in and just, I, I think uh, that's probably like the one piece of advice I'd say is just is think really, really big. Yeah. Your wife agree with this or she think you're crazy? Uh, every, she's just programmed different, you know? Like my, she's like a, <laughs> she's a, a really good mom. She's like a very, she has, she's, she's, she's not, she has no risk tolerance. You know, it's like no risk, you're very patient. Good with, you know, like we're just, we're, just, we're, we're set up, uh, our brains are set up differently. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeremy. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for spending the time and, and, and thank you. Thank you. I mean, what a great interview. So thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Clark. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Jace Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. 